How about Josh, uh, if you want to go first, and, and then we'll switch over. Oh, no, did we lose Josh? Yeah, <laughs> we literally just lost me. I, I'm going to stop my video. Sorry. We're, you want to start over? Okay, yeah. Well, you can just start your intro whenever, and we'll, we'll splice this together. Maybe we can all stop video and save some bandwidths. That's what I looked like when I had a haircut. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> Welcome to episode 358 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we've got an interview today. Off and on, off and on. Tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> Not the company we're referring to the release schedule. Uh, today we're catching up with Bobby Goodlatte and Josh Williams, who have recently started a new investment fund called Form Capital. And we ask them all about it. We talk about starting a fund. We talk about the current landscape of venture capital, what they're doing in their fund, how they're differentiating. And we talk a lot about just venture capital for beginners, for designers who maybe want to be founders. And we share advice for uh, designers who want to start a company someday. So uh, we got a really great interview coming up. Before we do, we got a huge shout out to Float. Float is a resource management tool for planning your team's time across multiple projects. It's built by creatives for creatives, and it makes resource planning really simple, just like it should be. You can learn more at float.com slash design details. Thank you, Float. Thank you, Float. And we also have some VIPs, some very important pixels at Marshall. Big week. For yeah. This week. What so happened? Many. What happened? Yeah, I don't know. I know. Actually, I know what happened. Because we, we put half of the episode. Because last, last week we did a half episode. Yeah. Um, all I can say is the sidebars continue to be like the most fun segment of the show. And mm-hmm. for interviews uh, like we have today, we ask bonus questions. And I thought we had some really great bonus questions today. Anyways, we have some new VIPs. Huge shout outs to Axe Raider. One word. Axe Raider one word mm-hmm. marshall i am in, i'm into I'm, it i'm suspicious that this isn't the person's real name <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think this might be a pseudonym brian i think it might be a pseudonym yeah i don't yeah, i don't think this is actually that that person's name but we'll um we'll just assume that this is acts of the raider clan you know yeah yeah so <laughs> thanks thanks axe raider shout out to Swapnil kosarabe i hope i got that sorry and Vuoco aro connor o'halloran Adam Dipper, Adam Miles, Jack Brind, Brind, Raymond Bessemer, Emily Kane, Elliot Roche, Robert Orff, and last but not least, Matt. Just good old Matt. <laughs> What's just Matt? I I like the Matt. first name ones that come through. It's just like it's like they probably just forgot to type in their last name, or they're being privacy conscious. Yeah, yeah, I'm guessing it's privacy. Or, or they're going for like a Madonna kind of situation here, like really trying to capitalize on Matt as the just Matt, a brand. I'm the <laughs> Matt, not a Matt. Capital the. M. Don't even need the, just Matt. I embody all that is Matt. <laughs> the essence of Matt. <laughs> yeah. A new fragrance by Tom Ford. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. So thank you all for supporting the show. Like we mentioned, this is a listener-supported podcast, and supporters of the show get access to a special bonus segment every episode. Last week's just happened to be really long, uh, and this week, since we have an interview, uh, we're going to ask some bonus questions. We talk about under and overrated skills for design founders. So if you want to hear Josh and Bobby answer those, go to patreon.com slash design details. And just starts at a dollar a month. So you'll be supporting the show, making it directly possible for us to record this every week and also getting access to some extra juicy answers. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about the the bonus segment on interview days is we ask the same questions every time, but we get such wildly different answers every time. That's what I why I love it so much. Yes, yes. They're nice. All right. Well, last thing here, Marshall, we'd be remiss. Well, first of all, I gotta say, I kind of fucked up. Because oh. it was actually over a week ago that it was your two-year design details anniversary. Yeah, yeah and we flown. didn't celebrate it. I know. I, I think it was it was on my calendar. I just didn't see it because I don't open my calendar while we're recording for some reason. Yeah. Anyways, well, I didn't even know. Uh, the only reason I found out is because I Facetimed Bryn the other day talking about condiments. Uh, you know, a $60 ketchup. And he mentioned like, hey, uh, it's been like 100 episodes, right? And I did the math real quick because he, he knew that his last episode was 256. 
and he saw what number we were on. So he was like, hey, uh, you're coming up on 100 episodes. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, actually, we are. This is my 100th episode, Brian. Not only two years, but 100 episodes. Wild. Wild. Mini interview. Most surprising thing about podcasting for two years. Um, How quickly it's gone. I I feel like I just started. It definitely doesn't feel like we've been doing this literally every week, except for a few weeks for the last two years. That seems like a very long time and a lot of commitment, but it doesn't feel like I've put a, a ton of like... No, 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 I'm going to take that back. I have put a ton of effort in time. Yeah, you have, I, was, I was about to correct you on air, dude. But like, <laughs> but like, you know, when I think back on it, when I, when I think of this podcast, I don't think about the hours in logic, you know, editing ums out. I, I think of, you know, the time sitting in the chair, hanging out with my buddy, talking about stuff we both like, hey, you know, so yeah. uh, it's, it's flown by and I'm looking forward to the next set of a hundred episodes. Holy shit. <laughs> Onwards into the night we go. Yes. All right, let's get into our interview. Uh, Once again, we're catching up today with Bobby Goodlatte and Josh Williams from Form Capital. All right, Bobby and Josh, thanks for coming on the show. For people who haven't heard of you or might not be familiar, maybe it's worth introducing yourself first and then we'll we'll jump in. So yeah, my name is Josh Williams. I'm a designer by trade, originally a graphic designer, then a product designer. Founded a company called Gowalla. It was an early player in the location-based services space and ultimately landed at Facebook. Spent a little time there as a product manager, branched back out, and I've spent the last four or five years doing design sprints for very early stage companies. And now I'm a co-founder at Form Capital. Lovely. It's also probably worth calling out that, Josh, you were episode 200 of Design Details. So that's like, what, three, over three years ago, probably? No, definitely over three. It's got to be like four plus i'm looking on the website it doesn't have a timestamp, which is something i need to fix but definitely episode 200 so that's been a long time so yeah i guess if anyone wants to hear more of of that go to episode 200 it was titled karate chop feels i don't know why i'm sure there was something in there. <laughs> oh I, there was a reason for that now i recall it was funny i can't remember what it was <laughs> can't remember but it's good all right and bobby how about you for people who don't know what's your quick intro. Yeah. So my name is Bobby Goodlatte. I'm a designer turned startup investor. Uh, started my career out at Facebook where I was a designer there. It's where Josh and I first worked together, although we've known each other for much longer than before that. And uh, I was the first designer on Facebook's user growth team. And then later uh, was a designer for Facebook photos, designing a lot of their web UI for photos. Since leaving Facebook, I've invested in uh, about 50 different startups over the years. And you know, then the opportunity to start something uh, which kind of combines two huge interest areas of mine emerged. Uh, Josh and I had just like this legendary lunch uh, where we were like, oh, you're kind of solving some of the problems that I want to solve and you know, covering some of the areas that I'm not covering. And the idea of working together just became an obvious choice. Uh, and then Form Capital came to be. Okay, so we, we've gathered you here today for this specific reason, to talk about Form Capital, because this launched last week. It's brand new, right? I just want to know, let's spend a little more time about this epic lunch. Like, What was the genesis of the idea, and how does one make the decision to start an investment fund? Yeah, great question. And you know, to be honest, it's something that just took a very long time to come to be and came kind of as a combination of kind of this intersection of work we've both already done. So Josh had spent many years running design sprints with startups. I've spent many years being a small angel investor in startups. And you know those kind of two passion areas, plus kind of looking at the landscape of early stage startup investing today, we realized, hey, this can be you know, not only an offering that is extremely valuable for founders, but it's also extremely differentiated in the space and kind of offers us a number of competitive advantages. And so, you know, the more we kind of entertain the idea of, of building a fund that does design sprints with each investment, the more we realized how compatible those two worlds really are and how this, uh, you know, really hands-on design support we can bring is actually a huge strategic advantage. And and so what first felt like relatively disconnected areas, you know, the more we thought about it, the more we realized, hey, this is uh, kind of the making for something great here. So I think this makes a lot of assumptions, right? Like this assumes that early stage companies who are raising capital 
need design help, which to me says uh, maybe there's not as many like design founders as, as we might hope for, or perhaps more positively that more and more early stage companies are, are recognizing the importance of early stage design. What did you find that sort of confirmed or, or denied any beliefs about the role of design in early stage companies talking to founders? Uh, were you encountering design founders that still needed help with this or like Walk me through the landscape of seed stage today and where design plays a role. Yeah. So I think we're extremely excited to invest in design founders. And we're also excited to invest where we can help create a culture that values design early on. For design founders, I think the real opportunity is the ability to collaborate with a peer. And so Josh is just one of the most uh, accomplished designers I know. And I think as an early stage startup founder, you know, if you go, especially from a large design team to running your own startup, you've gone from an environment where you have a lot of peer feedback, you have collaboration, you can, you, you can kind of strengthen the, your work by bouncing it off of other people, other people who are kind of aligned with you in making it great. We can offer that same sort of environment through our design sprints, even for teams that really have that base covered. So we want to invest in startups where, again, we can really help inspire that spirit of being design focused. But we also think that teams that are, you know, really have design in their DNA, that there's value there as well. That's right. I, I think that something I learned over, you know, the past four years or so of doing design sprints is, is you find, you know, a handful of startups that don't have a design co-founder or they've just hired, you know, designer number one, and they're trying to figure out how do they, how do they get on their two feet and walk. And I, I find that design at a, you know, a two or three or four person company, it's really difficult, especially hiring that first designer, because there's a little bit of a, a chicken egg problem of, you know, you're trying to bring that designer on board and you want to say, hey, look, we've got this amazing product and kind of a greenfield opportunity for you to come in and make it your own and a, a designer possibly coming off of a, a job at a larger organization looks at the startup and is like oh well you know you don't necessarily have a designer on your your team how how do i know that you value design i have no way to kind of like judge or be a barometer here and i feel like that's kind of one of our roles that we can play as an investor and kind of a, a partner alongside these companies is to help these early designers that are coming into startups and say, hey, like vet founders for them and effectively say, hey, these people do value design. We're here to kind of like, again, walk alongside and be that teammate that gets them, you know, from a crawl to a walk. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity. And, and I hope that there's just so much work out there. There's so much opportunity for designers to jump in with these early stage companies. But again, vetting them or starting one yourself, I think requires, you know, a little bit of support. So when people raise money today, it might be worth even just laying out a little bit more of the landscape here to really articulate why offering design services is interesting because, you know, you raise money for lots of reasons. Like one is capital, but you might also raise money from a, an individual or fund for access to operational expertise, like advisory, networking, right? Like with the portfolio. But this addition of sort of, what would you call this, like services supplemented capital? Like what does the landscape of seed stage kind of look like? Yeah, I think we'd be referred to as value add services by folks in the, in the venture capital space. And there is a history of this. You know, I think the very best venture firms try to add a lot more value than just the check they write. And that's how they create a durable advantage of being able to invest in the most promising companies. Even in the design space, the idea of, of doing design sprints is not new in venture capital. Google Ventures, or now, now they're called GV, kind of pioneered this in some ways, and other venture funds do it as well. That said, uh, we're not aware of any fund that really does it as their main offering, and I think there's something really valuable to the idea of doing, doing one thing and doing it really well. And we also think that running design sprints at the earliest moment for the startup will raise outside capital. That's a, that's a moment where we think we could be most effective. There's kind of less chance that we're stepping on someone's toes. There's more of an opportunity to be collaborative. There's more opportunity for us to be able to throw up 
a lot of our thinking and kind of collaborate with the founders versus once a startup is more established, I think the, the design sprint it has to be more carefully considered in terms of how it's uh, integrated into the company. When I was working on Spectrum with Bryn and Max, I found there to be a little bit of an interesting tension when we were trying to raise capital, where we would approach people who felt like maybe we were on the right track, but we needed a little bit more work. Like there was just some some things that needed to get proven before they felt comfortable investing. And so with these people, we actually spent a lot of time in conversation before money ever transferred hands to like really get the feel for each other and, and collaborate together. I'm curious how you'll approach that tension of like there's companies that will certainly approach you that you feel like maybe there's something there. We could spend time with them and do some design sprints, but we're not sure about the money versus like they're a slam dunk, like you get our check and then we'll do the, the design sprint afterwards. How, how do you anticipate handling that sort of working relationship before the money's even, you know, switching bank accounts? I think we're excited to explore those opportunities. To be clear, this is a relationship-driven business. And, uh, you know, we think that the core offering we provide really is, are these design sprints, you know, it, it's, it's a good chunk of time that we're spending developing a relationship, having a working relationship with our founders. But we're eager to kind of start that relationship well before an investment happens. And I think, um, again, you know, raising money is, is not a light decision to make. And we're more than happy to be early advisors before a check comes in. That's right. I'm, I'm going to tail on that a little bit because I think this is something that gets lost in the design community a little bit. And, and I know we're kind of talking a good bit today about kind of the career path of design to potentially you know, founder, maybe investing, but obviously we're, we're guilty of being fairly insular in the design Twitter world and the design community itself. It can often be accused of, um, of being fairly navel gazing. And I think there's a lot of, of value of kind of turning your network outward and getting to know other founders and, and different companies, engineers, different companies, product managers, investors, and other places because those networks become really, really important down the road. And if you do get to that place of either needing to vet an early stage company that you're considering working with or starting one yourself, having those networks to go and um, scratch at can really be a superpower. And I, I feel like I stumbled upon this a, a little bit accidentally. I was privileged to work with some extraordinarily well-networked people early on in my career, and I inherited a lot of their networks. And it's not been until later on in my career that I truly recognize the value of that. But it's something if you're a younger designer right now and you think you kind of want to grow into building something of your own, you know, establishing those relationships and kind of deciding who, who your people are early on is really, really valuable. And because over time, you know, it's a fairly small you know, especially in the world of like product design and tech, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's a fairly small community. And so those relationships yeah, yeah. are really important. Maybe let's spend a little more time here because I think the networking and relationship building is incredibly important, as you've pointed out. I feel like I've, you know, in, in many of the same ways, been incredibly lucky with the people I've met. There seems to be still a gravity towards the Bay Area for this kind of thing. And I'm curious what you're seeing now. Obviously, COVID is changing a lot. And certainly founding a, a fund in, in the wake of COVID certainly must have some impact on your strategy. But like, how does this kind of geodense requirement for networking play into this? Like, do you anticipate that going away? Are you do you feel like you're actually going to be able to successfully invest in and run design sprints with people who aren't near you? Like, how is all this going to change that networking part of the equation? So, so on the, the last part of that question, the answer is yes. And again, I, I moved up north. I'm about an hour and a half out of the city four years ago now. So the vast majority of the sprints that I've done have been to some degree remote, in some cases, uh, completely remote. But since COVID kicked up, you know, I've been able to do maybe four or five sprints in this amount of time, and a few of them entirely facilitated through tools like like Figma, 
and at first you're like, is this going to work? And and then when you get into it, you realize, like, actually, this is pretty exciting. We've kind of reached this golden age of tools that make these sorts of interactions that are fully remote now uh, viable. And so that part's really exciting. Now, to, to the first part, I, I think that how you manage these relationships over time, long term, is a, is a really good question. Again, I made, even moving up here, uh, a conscious effort to, you know, be down in San Francisco pretty much on a weekly basis, you know, take a day, go down, see people. And I don't know, I don't know how that's going to play out. And I think that finding whether it's here in the Bay Area or where you are, who are the people that, you know, again, are connected and that you can find those intros and figure out ways to get into the community. It's different now than it was 10 years ago. There's so many more people. There's so much talent it's, again, on one hand, really exciting, and on the other hand, finding a way to, you know, not break through the noise, because I just think there's so much so much good out there, but still to connect with the right people will be an interesting challenge. Yeah, I, I mean, just straight up, would you recommend that people who want to be founders or, or want to raise capital, would you advise them to move to the Bay Area right now? I mean, rent is probably going down. <laughs> That's you know it's interesting. Baz Luhrmann had an old you know sun, you know the sunscreen song, and there's there's a famous line in there that says "Live in California once, but leave before you get soft." And I think that there's a certain amount of wisdom to that. That there's a bit of energy here that that you still can't find anywhere else. Uh, you know, I, I'm an import. I, I came from Texas. I spent some time in Austin. That's where my company was before I ended up out here. And I never had really any intention of being here long term. And then you get here and you realize, like, wow, there's a certain density. And I think New York has its own density in a different sort of way and a different network that that comes from being in a place like the Bay Area. But I think that you don't have to make it permanent. I think that you can kind of, you know, there's an opportunity to dip in and, and establish some roots. And I hate to say that too a little bit because then people will say, oh, well, you know, you're kind of encouraging the same sort of like transient nature that has historically always been San Francisco's um, blessing and curse. But at the same time, I do think it, there is some benefit to, to spending time out here, whether on occasion or in a more permanent sense. Well, maybe let me flip this then. I totally get your perspective, but when it comes to making investment decisions, how much will geographic proximity play in? Or are you anticipating being kind of like a remote fund where anybody in the world could pitch you, even if it's outside of the U.S.? Yeah, we, we are a remote fund, to be clear. Yeah, so I mean, Josh and I, you know, by by necessity during COVID, we are remote partners, and even during normal times, we would see each other in person about once or twice a week. And uh, so, so we are a remote first fund, and we're excited to invest in folks that are not based in the Bay Area. I think having access to some sort of network of of peers is incredibly important, and it doesn't have to be the Silicon Valley network. One of our philosophies on investing is. We want to find communities that have a kind of an early glimpse of the future and, and invest in people who uh, are members of those communities. And that increasingly is not just found in Silicon Valley. And in, fa- in fact, I think when it is in Silicon Valley, sometimes you know, it can be a bit overhyped or kind of overlooked at by, by investors. You know, so, so we will eagerly invest in people from all around the world. That said, I think if you want to put yourself in the best position as a founder, being part of some kind of strong community really helps. And I think to, to be clear too, even prior to everyone's quarantine, you know, something that Bobby and I said we we're really excited about is our tools that enable and empower remote work. And it's easy to say now because I think everybody's into it. But I do think that distributed teams are going to be a just terribly exciting growing uh, wave in the years to come and we're increasingly seeing larger and larger companies that are being built you know and, and fully distributed ways companies that are going public that are that are you know remote first and i think that's terribly terribly exciting so there's not you know there hasn't been ever a better time to build something that uh, doesn't have to have a you know large bay area presence 
And I, again, back to the network, I think if you can find ways to cultivate that, then you can truly build from wherever. Yeah. And another thing to say on being remote first is that you really have to put a lot of effort into forging deep relationships because I think the default is that those relationships don't form with remote. And so as a founder, you really have to think about that. And also for us as a venture firm, we think about that a lot. And again, I think one of our advantages behind our strategy of running design sprints is that we spend a lot of time with founders during those sprints. And so that becomes a mechanism by which we get to know a company a lot deeper. And so other funds will kind of take an initial pitch meeting, do a yes, no on that. And then that's kind of the, maybe the last strong touch point they have with the founder until it's time to raise the next round versus our approach is, again, make the investment and then really prove our value by doing this hands-on work. And, and we think that that ability to sing for our supper and really earn our keep on a cap table you know, we hope that that kind of pays dividends in terms of future follow-on opportunities to invest, which can also come with more design support. But yeah, I think our model really forges those relationships by just the virtue of spending so much time with each founder. And, you know, I think it also gives us a number of um, advantages over other firms to see opportunities emerge as they do. If, if one of our companies starts to take off or if we kind of spend a lot of time digging into a product and resonate with it deeply, you know, we can maybe see a future opportunity well before even other investors in the same company because, uh, you know, we're in the trenches with our founders. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And I think the hands-on is exciting. I, I, in my very limited experience, you, you find having raised money that there's kind of a mixture of hands-on and hands-off investors. Uh, again, very limited experience. But it did seem to me that the hands-on, like just by the nature of, hey, we're talking to each other and like discussing problems, you build deeper connections there and, and you're more excited to hear from them and share updates with them. So if you can facilitate those conversations by like actually doing work and not necessarily, you know, just sending email updates every month, that seems like a, a big win. I want to shift just a tiny bit here because uh, we've been talking about form capital. We've been talking about like seed stage funds and, and founders and all this kind of stuff. And I, I can only imagine a lot of our listeners are not founders. They're designers. They are engineers or product managers. But probably a lot of people out there are interested in becoming a founder or starting a company someday. So maybe we can shift a little bit and just, okay, let's start here. Give me like the 101 course level of what it means to raise seed stage capital. Like this was such a new idea for me when, when we did it with Spectrum. And I just remember being barraged with like terms and acronyms and math about how all this stuff work. And I think other people maybe feel uh, like this could use some explaining. So what's seed stage 101? Golly, that's a good question. I don't know, Bobby, where should we start on this? And you and I have kind of both been on that side of the table. I, I yeah. remember, yeah, go ahead. I'll tell my story in a second. I think like maybe the first place to start is just it's important when you raise money to have a good sense of what an investor's goals are. And before raising money, it's worthwhile to consider, you know, how are you know my investors now and my investors in the future, how are they structured? And you know, what does a success look like to them? And I think that that kind of prompts the question, like, okay, this this what is what I'm building kind of a venture style business. And I think there's a lot of cultural pressure right now, which is which is bad to press people towards saying, okay, I have to raise money for my startup. And I think it's really wise to ask, like, is this of the category that is venture backable? And it's not, that's not a value judgment. That's not a, oh, it's, it's good or bad that it's venture backable. But yeah, I think, I think a, a bad choice that a lot of founders make is trying to shoehorn you know, their dream into something that sounds venture backable when, yeah, and, and actually like that sets up a lot of folks for heartbreak, which is tough. To, it's tough to see that. And so understanding the dynamics of venture capital and what, what the incentives and goals of, again, not just your initial backers, but kind of all the way down the life cycle of financing, what are the aims of each investor along the way? I think that's a really good starting place. 
could we interject there? Because I'd love to know what your answer to that would be if someone was pitching to you. Because I, I remember we, we talked to people who everywhere from your idea sounds cool. Here's some money. I, w- I just want to like watch the movie to show me the math that proves that Spectrum will be worth a billion dollars in 10 years. Like we, we <laughs> yeah. hit that range. So like what would your answer to a, a founder be? I'll give a little bit of a story here that fits in this. My my first experience with venture capital coming from like the design founder world is I, I had a studio in Texas. We decided in 2004 that we were tired of all the effort it took to bill our clients. And so we built an invoicing service on the side. We ultimately decided to open that up and uh, sell it to other design companies, small freelancers and the like. It was called Blink Sale. And I remember about nine months after we launched it, we released a second version. And that second version got, you know, a lot more attention. Subscriptions started going up. And I got an email out of the blue from a guy named Roloff Botha. And I had no idea who Roloff is. Uh, turns out he's, a, you know, partner at uh, Sequoia, like one of the more storied partners at one of the more storied firms. And um, so Roloff's like, you know, you want to come out and, and talk about Blink Sale. And I called an attorney friend of mine who had some experience out here, and, and he knew more of Roloff. He was like, yeah, you need to take this meeting. I was probably 24, maybe 25 at the time. And so we, we flew out down to Sand Hill, and I met with Roloff and, you know, walked him through the product. He was obviously impressed, like what we were building. And then I remember at the end, he looked at me and said, well, can you imagine how Blink Sale becomes a $50 million a year business? And I remember just being like, what? And um, it, it blew my mind. I had like, I'd never thought numbers like that. And I, I pretty much was just like, well, no. <laughs> and I just, I kind of like straight up was just, you know, deer in the headlights. It's like, I, I have uh-huh. no idea. And I was overwhelmed by that thought. And pretty much that was it. That was the end of the discussions. And, you know, it never really went anywhere. And then, you know, Blink Cell continued to grow. It did well as kind of a, well, you know, what now people like to term a lifestyle business and then ultimately sold it off. But now in retrospect, I look back at the point I was like 10 years beyond that. I had one of those like, holy crap, of course, Blink Cell was a $50 million a year yep. business. Yep. And, and you look at companies like Zero and others like that, that have it literally have taken what we built uh, and there are multi-billion dollar businesses. And there is, you know, there's that aspect of kind of understanding like what, what's your market, what are you building for? And then on the flip side, I've also started companies and even put some money behind them that absolutely weren't venture scale businesses. And you realize there's like no way for them, you know, even if everything goes well, and even if it is a great business, so to say, that it's gonna get to a place where, you know, there's a potential multi-billion dollar outcome, you know, either through an IPO or an acquisition at some point. And that's the majority of what your, you know, classic seed stage venture firms are are looking for. And so there may be investors out there that are willing to, you know, look at something else, but it's it's a different profile. And that's where you kind of have to have an understanding of what makes different investment firms tick and also not take offense when somebody passes on your company of like, oh, they must not think I have a good business. And like Bobby said, a lot of it's, it's not that. It's just that it, it doesn't fit the profile. That's well, exactly yeah, I right. Mean, it's yeah. about, it's like aligning incentives, right? Like we want success to look loosely the same for each other so that if one of us is excited, the other one's not disappointed. Yeah. And I think another thing just that's important to say is that there are more categories of venture backable businesses today than I think ever before. And a lot of that is because of the infrastructure that's been laid out. So for example, I'm an investor in a baby food startup as a, as a, as a personal angel. And I think 15 years ago, you might talk to a lot of venture capitalists and say, I, I wanna start this baby food startup. And they would you know, not think of that as a venture scale business, it doesn't scale fast enough, big enough. But now with platforms like Instagram, these direct-to-consumer businesses as a category are looking a lot more venture backable than ever before. And I think that's true across a number of areas, like the addressable markets for what seems like a kind of simple, small product can be gigantic. So it's worth having a big imagination around like, is my idea venture backable? And I think, again, the answer is is yes to more and more companies where, whereas before it, I think it would be a no, but, it's really important to kind of be totally intellectually honest with yourself because if you're not, 
you're really just setting yourself up for a really painful experience. And there are alternative fundraising mechanisms, which I think should be culturally more celebrated. I think Silicon Valley and, and kind of startup culture in general just lionizes these huge rare outcomes a bit too much. And I think that sends some entrepreneurs down the wrong trail. And that's, that's tough to see. So can we just lay that out? Like, what are some alternatives to raising, I guess, venture scale capital? What are other things that someone might consider before coming to you or, or simultaneously while talking to you? And how would you advise somebody who might be on the fence about venture or not? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, that's an area where I'd actually like to see a lot more innovation. Funny enough, I think a great venture scale business would be figuring out financing for non-venture scale businesses. Um, <laughs> and that would be an enabling opportunity for a lot of founders who want to swing at very important ideas, but ideas that are not, you know, these, these kind of massive what 200x plus uh, return possibilities. That's right. There, there are even there are some firms like NDVC is another one out there that's kind of innovated in this place where they've kind of explicitly taken a. I mean, in fact, their website is literally a unicorn on fire, and <laughs> I think that you know there are some firms that are that are starting to experiment with. Okay, how can we construct a fund? where if the outcomes are, you know, at a different scale, that this can still be a big business. And I think it's exciting to see people doing more along those lines. And so there's gonna be a lot of innovation here, but it's still, we're in the early days for sure. Yeah, so I get that there's variance among like raising capital, but what about other options like bootstrapping or just doing a family friends, maybe slash angel round? Like what are options outside of VC, perhaps maybe we just exclude like you sell a thing and make profit. Although I guess you could probably bundle that in as, as an alternative. Like what, what else is, is an option for people? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think don't, don't overlook the idea of just selling a thing because it's easier now than ever to just start selling because, uh, you know, I think again, 15 years ago, think about how much code and infrastructure and work you had to, you had to put in before you know making your first sale, and now you know you sign up for a Stripe Connect account, and, and you're you're yep. making revenue right away. And so I think bootstrapping is is very smart. And the other thing to say is that uh, angel investors can have different math behind their returns, which is important to, to know. And so for an angel investor, it can be a great opportunity to invest in a lower risk and lower return outcome than a traditional venture investor simply due to the structure of venture capital firms. And like to get to the practical point, because a lot of, um, I, don't, I don't totally know that I understood this when I was a designer, you know, getting into the world of ventures. A lot of times you think like these venture firms are investing their own money the same way that a, a, an angel would invest their own money. And that's not the reality. Funds have investors the same way that startups have investors. And, and oftentimes, a fund's investors, they themselves have investors. And so there's like layers and layers and layers here. And, and at every layer, there's a different set of goals and a different set of priorities. And I think that's important to understand is that oftentimes, a yes or a no answer from an investor may be dictated by, again, what they've in turn told to their own investors of here's how we're going to run this fund. And these are the types of companies that we're looking at are the scale of returns that we're, we're aiming for. And I think that's important to understand that everybody kind of has competing interests that they're trying to, you know, have in the balance. And I remember I had a company after I left Facebook called Last Guide, and it did not end up well. There are many reasons for that. But at the end, we were kind of on the rocks and we kind of all knew that it wasn't going to land out great. One of our largest investors was also, you know, kind of like white knuckling it and like really, really concerned about how we were going to land. And I remember thinking like, oh, man, we're, there's, you know, pressure here from, from my investors. And then come to find out kind of after the fact, they themselves were in the middle of a fundraise, you know, right then. And so, you know, they're dealing with their own tensions and they're dealing with their own things that they're trying to land. And sometimes there's, there's a trickle down. Uh, and sometimes you're, you know, you're like the dog that's getting, you know, kicked to the side. And, and that's not, you know, any, any fault of theirs. It's just, just the reality and, and kind of understanding that there's always interesting layers at play. Uh, it helps you kind of remember not to take these things personally, but rather just realize like this is, 
it's all hard. Starting a company is hard. Build what is you know something that Jason Calacanis you know said recently that stuck in my head um, was whether it's you know it's a small business or a medium sized business or a large business or venture scale business, all of it is really hard. And if you take this journey into becoming an entrepreneur or founder, you just realize that like. I don't mean in like the hustle, you got to work, you know, 60, 80, 100 hours a week. I think that's bullshit. But just the, the mental toll and it's your baby and, you know, juggling all these, you know, the business, the marketing, the design, the engineering, the product. It's all a lot of work and uh, it's really exciting and it's really fulfilling. But you have to get your, give yourself some grace in there and give the other people around you some grace as well, because none of this stuff is is easy. And a lot of it is you know, not going to work out the way that you'd hoped, but that's not to take away from, from the journey. There's, there's so much joy that can, can come from it if your expectations are kind of aligned. That's right. Well, yeah. so let, let's transition here because I, I had one more question before bonus questions, which is a perfect way to sort of segue there is this is an intimidating world. It's hard. There's a lot of stuff to learn becoming a founder. Just you have to be immersed in this stuff. And if it's your first time, uh, you're learning a lot on the fly. You're, you're reading maniacally, just like trying to get advice from anybody. What advice would you have for designers who are, who are maybe just one step shy of that? They, they want to be a founder, but they're just not sure like where to go to even start learning about this stuff. You know, it'd be like telling someone go learn to code and then not telling them what to code. It's like, what would be the on-ramp sort of education or resources, people to follow, books for designers? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to say is that you take a lot of startup advice you read on the internet with a grain of salt, and you'll find kind of some sources of startup advice to be kind of consistently more applicable than others. And and you'll find a lot of startup advice these days kind of falls under this category of like content marketing, where it's kind of, um, you know, Twitterized advice that is maybe designed to go viral. You know, maybe it's it's just designed to be a signaling thing for the person giving the advice. A lot of this kind of hustle culture in Silicon Valley falls under that category where you have um, these kind of influencer types telling people to work 80 hour weeks. And that advice is born more out of the advice givers want to need, need to promote themselves than it is um, out of any earnest kind of deep felt need to give actionable advice to a potential founder. I think one, you know, one source is uh, that I've always loved over the years is uh Paul Graham and his essays on, on startups. I think those are very thoughtful pieces. In general, uh, I would steer people towards longer form um, uh, startup advice pieces, things that are more about case studies of past successes than sort of soundbite advice. And it's very important when you're starting a company to just not internalize too many kind of maxims and foregone conclusions about how things should be. I think, I think you kind of hear a lot of conventional wisdom, and um, it, it's actually best to really rethink things from, from first principles and to really come up with, come up with your strategies and your uh, approaches kind of on, on your own and, and learn from the best, but really make it your own. I think overindulging on this culture of sharing these nuggets of startup wisdom can, can get you kind of making decisions based on other people's thinking and not on your own. I think that if you, again, back to knowing who your tribe is or knowing who your, who your team is, and again, that's one of the reasons why I, I said include other, you know, other founders or people that are kind of adjacent to you, because in general, I do find, you know, the community to be fairly generous with its help. And I, I think being able to go to other founders that you admire their companies or you admire what it is that they've built. It may even be a company that you worked at before and being able to say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this on my own. Can you, you know, help demystify it a little bit for me? I think people are, are happy to at least help give some initial advice or kind of point you in the right direction or give you other people, you know, names that you should um, you should talk with. Because I think those personal relationships, going back to Bobby's point, are probably better at helping you develop your own view of the world as opposed to, again, a lot of groupthink that kind of bounces around on, on Twitter. I think that's good advice. All right. Anything else that you guys want to touch on before we move into bonus questions, cool things, and then and then we'll wrap? I think we covered a lot of bases there. I mean, we kind of talked about our, our fund and, and kind of 
this idea of doing design sprints in, as a kind of a somewhat of a tried and true thing in venture capital, but never done as in a, such a focused way as what we're doing. You know, we touched a little bit on when is it right to raise venture capital? What does a venture backable business look like? How should designers who want to get started, how should they think about approaching investors or, or start to you know, make those moves? Please, uh, if anyone's listening to this and looking to, 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 to do that, you know, feel free to reach out to us, Bobby at formcapital.com. We're always uh, excited to encourage more designers to become founders. Awesome. Lovely. Okay. Let's wrap with some cool, cool things, recommendations, and then we'll get you out of here. I'll go first because I think it's such a cool thing that I worry that someone else will steal it. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the new Ford Bronco. Oh, oh, yeah. Like that is one of the coolest cars I've seen launched in a long time. And yeah, I mean, it kind of took a lot of folks in the design community by storm, but man, that car is cool. What, what's think, your favorite part about it? Like, why, why is it yeah, uh, what, such a cool car? Yeah, I mean, they just killed the lines on it. It's just, it's just a gorgeous car. It looks car. hot. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> I, I really, I'm not going to buy one, but it's one of those cars where it's like, it's such a great design that you're like, well, maybe I should buy it. Maybe I, maybe I should, like, you start thinking about this whole lifestyle of like, oh, I just bought this Ford Bronco. <laughs> it's you know, working. I would, I would go outside so much more, wouldn't I? <laughs> right. This is what they um, want you to think, Bobby. Would you buy it if it were electric? That's my curiosity question. Mm. Actually, yes. Yeah, I think. I, yeah, I would, see? I would, I would too. Edge. That would tip me <laughs> over the edge for sure. Oh, man. What do you uh, think of all that? The interface on it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. All that UI. Rocks and lava and snow. I haven't actually looked at that. I, I, I think After like, this, go go look up some screenshots of the UI and, and just marvel. Yeah, I was like, okay, I, I was good. surprised that you were focusing solely on the exterior. I'm like, there's, there's so much to talk about in the interior. I think we went through like a period with cars on user interface where like, I think there's an era, there's gonna be an era of cars that are just like far less collectible because they were so early in car user interfaces. Where it's mm-hmm. like prior to having screens in cars, I think mm-hmm. those cars are, are 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 more timeless because they have buttons and and you know dials and whatnot. And then you had this era of like really terrible car interfaces. And now we're kind of coming out of that where you know maybe we're finally developing car UIs that are like maybe going to hold up in twenty years from now. Maybe maybe not, but you could kind of credibly make that claim versus you have any car from like eight to 10 years ago. It's like, forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Josh hit us. Okay. So I, w- I was going to hit you with the one sky telescope and people should still go look that up. Cause it's super cool. But actually I was just reminded a second ago that my nephew for his birthday got one of these, a Segway nine bot go-karts. I don't know if you've uh, seen what? this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. So, you know, they've got the little Segway wheels and then they sell like a go-kart kit that you put the cart kit on the front and like modify it to be a tiny little electric go-kart. I totally want one of these. So, in fact, don't everyone go out and buy it because they're probably, it's totally the type of thing that's going to sell out during COVID. Uh, And now I feel like I need to get one for my son too. (laughs) This thing looks totally hot. This looks pretty fun. Up to 15 miles an hour. Not bad. Yeah, I mean, I could. I mean, it'd be better if it was like twenty or thirty, but you sure, know, sure. but fifteen cruising is like around the neighborhood. Yeah, sure. if you're gonna like toodle around the neighborhood. It's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool thing, and it's not as expensive as I thought it would be. No, and it seems like if you want it in red, there's a big discount on it right now. Which oh wow! Doesn't make sense. <laughs> strange, strange how that works. All right, Marshall, you want to go? All right. Okay. So my cool thing this week is. A YouTube video. It's uh, so okay. This is kind of uh, meta, Brian. But one of my like top five movies of all time is Scott Pilgrim versus the yes. World. Okay, cool. And very recently, maybe like a week and a half ago, uh, was the ten year anniversary of that movie, which makes me feel very old. But they did a table read. The they got the not the entire cast, but like basically everybody from the cast to do a Zoom call. And do a table read, and it's it's edited, so there's some like split screen stuff, and it feels kind of like the movie. The timing is good, right? It's not delayed and lots of time between people in the way that you would expect from like a video conference call for it to not to like flow very well. It's edited well, but uh, it's really cool to see everybody 
come back and reprise their roles. Aubrey Plaza goes in a hundred percent as you would expect her to do, and the, everybody's loving it. It's really great. But yeah, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. It's it's like you can close your eyes and it's like watching the movie all over again. That's awesome. That's awesome. Wow, watching the movie with your eyes closed. That's a new. That's a new thing. Well, yeah. I've seen it so many times. It's like I can <laughs> like just by him hearing them read. It's like oh yeah, I'm seeing the movie in my head. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Josh, you into it? I'm totally into it. I remember seeing um, Scott Pilgrim at the Draft House on South Lamar in Austin. Good times. Nice. Well, my cool thing this week is also a film. Yeah. It's not the one you're expecting, Marshall. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. I made him watch a movie, uh, but I thought he was going to make pick that movie. But. No, no, no. Marshall gave me movie homework, and we still have yet to discuss it. So my cool thing this week is a movie called Time Crimes, oh, which is a 2007, 2007 Spanish film, insanely low budget. But boy, oh boy, is it a thinker. You watch that movie, and I watched, I watched it with my family, actually, and we all just kind of sat there for a while afterwards. Just, <laughs> That's great. Just kind of thinking. And those are my favorite kind of movies, especially because even the next morning, I woke up and my mom was like, I've been thinking about this all night. So what if this <laughs> happened? What if the, like, Did it work like this? And those are the best kind of movies. Mm-hmm. So I won't spoil anything. It's called Time Crimes. Uh, I think you can rent it for a couple bucks, but maybe it's streaming do you, somewhere. Do you want to set up the premise at all? Like what kind of movie it is? Oh, well. Time crimes. Time crimes. There's time travel involved and there's crimes involved. Okay. <laughs> there's gratuitous nudity in it. Like, is there, there? There's some nudity in it that you're like, eh, I don't think this needs to be here. But, you know, oh. once you breeze past that, then then it picks up. Right, right. But then you, uh, yeah, you watch yeah, this yeah, with, yeah. Your, with your mom? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> She was like, so, who recommended this movie, huh? (laughs) Anyways. All right. Well, cool things, everybody. Bobby and Josh, thanks so much for for joining us. And uh, we're excited about form, and I'm excited to see things evolve and i guess i guess you know you talked a lot about not tweeting too much but i will only know about what happens by following you on twitter so (laughs) i'll look for the tweets about you know investments and and updates there hopefully hopefully the value to tweet ratio is at least reasonably okay yeah yeah all right well we'll have links in the show notes to formcapital.com let me say that without a question to (laughs) formcapital.com and to, to both of your twitters and uh, you mentioned it, both of your emails, Bobby at and Josh at. Is that correct? Or JW at. Oh, JW at. Lovely. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, hey, guys. thank you so much for having us. All right. This has been episode 358 of the Design Details podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. Of course, uh, please tweet at Bobby and Josh if you enjoyed the episode. I'm sure they would love to hear from you and, and hear what you thought. Or if you had other questions, uh, Twitter is a great way to get in touch. If you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just Just like like you. you. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Signing off from wine country, I'm Josh Williams. Thanks. Bye-bye. Signing off from wine country, I'm Josh Williams. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, now, now we can press stop.